This presentation was from Yorks Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. I'm very pleased to welcome to the stage Alex Young. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. And actually, Donna reminded me yesterday that um, I did a talk at UX Australia live in 2010, kind of introducing the concepts of, of AR and how they might apply to UXs. And I was thinking, God, last night, that's a long time ago. And I was trying to think what has actually changed um, both in the industry and with the technologies and what people are doing with it over the last seven, almost eight years since then. Um, and to be honest, from a pure augmented reality perspective, um, it, in some ways it feels like a lot has changed from a technology perspective under the hood. Things have gotten faster, more responsive. Um, you know, the, the technology is easier to access, but from a pure experience perspective, we haven't changed at all. Um, a lot of the labels that, that people use have changed, but they're, they're really describing the same technologies. Um, and really, you know, we're only just starting to see augmented reality start to move out of the kind of enterprise and industrial space and into the kind of consumer mindset. And then as far as kind of VR slash mixed reality, kind of whatever you want to call it, um, with all those other things, like VR hadn't even started kind of coming into its, you know, second birth. You know, the phoenix hadn't started rising for that. So literally, you know, that is something that has happened over the last kind of couple of years. So I think there's kind of a lot to, to get through. Um, we, Rob and I ran a workshop yesterday with about 25, 26 um, people that it was, it was amazing. They came from a really diverse range of kind of design disciplines um, and it was really interesting watching them work through the process of kind of trying to use um, and onboard um, onto a lot of these kind of both VR and AR experiences and kind of I think that's what we came up with was there's a lot of room within the design or within this industry for designers to come in and start influencing the experiences within these realms. So, um, so a little bit about me. Um, come from a long background in kind of working with emerging technologies. So kind of oh, been around way too long but um, Back in kind of 1999-2000, did a lot of work for a few years on kind of interactive TV. That went somewhere, didn't it? Um, then kind of moved into, um, you know, the, the internet space more and then into kind of the mobile space and a lot of mobile design, multi-device design. Did a lot of work with a lot of different companies around that. And then about 10 or 12 years ago, um, the company that I'm with, um, or which wasn't all back then, we had a name change, but we started doing a lot of research and development into, at that time, augmented reality. Um, and really since then, we've been driving to, I guess, try and democratise the creation process and the experience process across AR firstly, but then really now also moving into kind of that VR and mixed reality space. Um, and more recently, probably, well, actually really over the last eight years, pushing to move all of these technologies to be supported by the web and move them out of a kind of siloed um, arena and into a more democratic kind of platform. And really, so it's supported by the world's biggest kind of digital or technical platform. So I don't know how many of you in the last kind of week have seen um, Disney's Magic Bench that they launched. Anyone? A couple? Yep. So <coughs> this is um, out of the Disney R&D group. So they're kind of Imagineering group. Um, and they have basically launched this bench that you 
sit on and you can start having conversations and interacting with Disney characters. So it looks pretty cool. It's awesome. Right? And, you know, a lot of work has gone behind it. But this is how they're selling it, yeah? It's like you can sit down and one-on-one -on -one with your favourite Disney character. That's the reality. So there's kind of a bit of a disconnect, right? So, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and this, you know, I mean, they've got some really nice things where, you know, if she bends down and, and, and touches and pats the little deer, I think, or miniature horse or whatever it is there, you know, the, the, you, she's not going to actually feel that, you know, it's, it, it, she's going to see her hand in that really disembodied way, kind of touch this, this deer, Bambi, whatever it is. Um, and maybe get a little bit of haptic feedback from some kind of literally vibrators they've got under the, under the bench there. But, you know, unless you're actually keeping your eyes on the screen and seeing that mirror of yourself, you've actually got nothing to experience. So I'll show you, just to set the scene a little bit, I'll show you a really quick video. One of the compelling ideas behind mixed reality is this ability to share the same space as an animated character. And this is where an exciting new form of storytelling begins. Current mixed reality experiences can be very compelling, but they require a person to either wear a head-mounted display or direct through a handheld device like a phone or tablet. And this can be an isolating experience because you need the hardware to participate. What we're proposing is that instrumenting a person, what can we accomplish by instrumenting the environment, creating a walk-up and play experience? Our setup looks like this. We have a bench facing the display, and co-located with that display, we have an RGB camera and a depth sensor. So a user sees themselves mirrored in this display, creating a third-person point of view. Bill Tanjukhanj needs to combine physical space with virtual space. To do this, we take a depth sensor and we construct a mesh from its point cloud. We then take that mesh and align it on top of a standard RGB feed to create a 3D reconstruction of the scene. We can then populate that 3D reconstruction with virtual content in real time. We still have one major problem, and that's that the RGB camera and the depth sensor cannot physically occupy the same space, so they have different viewing angles. This creates holes in our 3D reconstruction, called depth shadows. To solve this, we modify our original 3D reconstruction algorithm to create a flat 2D backdrop, which we then place behind our 3D reconstruction. When viewed from precisely the right angle, both components combine to create a seamless image. Our mantra for this project was hear a character coming, see them enter the space, and feel them sit next to you. We wanted to create an immersive experience through a multi-sensory approach. Because Oops, I'll leave it there because I think you kind of get the idea, right? So, in terms of um, you know how, I guess how portable this solution is, it's not. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool that, you know, you can have multiple people experiencing it at the same time and they've got some awesomely cool tech, but the setup for that, you know, I can guarantee is, I'll say, bazillion, you know, one million dollars or bazillions of dollars. It's not something that is doable pretty easily and takes a long time to do. So what are we going to run through today, I guess, um, is not how to make a magic bench. Um, well, a little bit. 
But really looking at some of the, the I guess, um, terminology and language and technologies that make up what we're now calling mixed reality. Um, to go back and just talk a little bit about the history so we know where we've come from um, and where we're going and, and why certain things have come about in the way that they have. Um, yeah, really trying to, uh, what we're seeing a lot at the moment is um, people kind of coming up and saying, oh, I want this XYZ amazing experience and they kind of throw this, this terminology at you that they've read in a Mashable article or they've heard kind of people espouse in, in, other, in other meetups. And, I think there's a lot of, um, I guess, miscommunication and misunderstanding because of the different language and terminology that, that's floating around at the moment. Um, and then really looking at the different technologies and approaches that make up, I guess, the spectrum of these technologies. Um, and then really looking at the UX layer. So um, how as designers can we start working within this field and start integrating it into a lot of our practices um, and looking at some of the problems that we face in in day-to-day -day life and what we're doing and seeing how maybe we can start blending the physical and, and the digital a bit more or the physical and the virtual a bit more. So, I want to, again, show a video, but really quick because you'll get the idea really quickly, but the future could be hell, right? It, it could absolutely be hell. But basically, there's a, this video and um, the woman starts off in a, in a bus and the bus is basically, you know, overloaded with a lot of digital information right in front of her and she's having an existential crisis and kind of, you know, being thrown these digital things and asking Google who is she and that, you know, it's literally telling her who she is and what age she's like, oh, who am I? And, you know, getting bombarded with, you're this person who likes this product and this product and it, it's absolute hell. Um, and I think what, what our responsibility is, is to not let it become this really overcrowded kind of complex and, and overbearing space. <laughs> so if we start off um, with, I guess, a bit of the history. So Eddie Cantor was an old school actor in Hollywood, kind of black and white days. Um, and I think he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder because he basically said it takes 20 years to become an overnight success. Um, I would argue that for both AR and VR, that's so wrong. It's taken a hell of a lot longer than that. Um, and I think it is still both from a, a technology perspective, although definitely speeding up, but definitely from a, a kind of awareness and pervasiveness perspective, um, it still has a long way to go before it's counted as successful. So a super short history, otherwise we're going to be here for days. But, um, and this is certainly not starting at the beginning. You can literally go back to Elizabethan theatre times and, and before to find out, you know, a, a bit more about um, kind of the, the illusion of, of, of things. But in 1929, um, the Link Simulator was developed and that was really to um, start training pilots in how to fly planes. And I think that was used up until you know, I think the, the 60s even, or the 70s, and I think they ended up putting about 50,000 pilots through it. So really it was about, A, we don't have enough planes to put you in and really sit there without the plane doing anything because they should be up in the sky, and B, we actually don't want to put you behind the controls of a plane if you don't know how to do it. So. <laughs> and then we had a guy, um, a French poet and playwright and actor in the 1930s, um, who really coined the term virtual reality, but he wasn't thinking about it in a virtualized or digital way back then, he was thinking about it from a theatrical um, context and how he could bring that kind of, 
you know, virtual space into the theatre sphere and into the stage. Um, so this is a pretty awesome example. This is the Sensorama uh, by Morton Heerleg in the early 1960s. And it was, um, I don't want to call it a ride, but it was an experience in Coney Island in New York. And basically, awesome looking contraption. But you stuck your head in there, you held onto some handles, and it was a motorbike ride through the streets of New York really super fast. What they did was, it was black and white film obviously, but they had massive fans kind of blowing wind at you so you felt like you were riding really fast. It had all the kind of traffic noises that you'd find in New York. It had aromas of New York back then, which wouldn't have been very pleasant. Um, but it was, you know, it, and it had vibrations in the seat and, you know, kind of took people through this journey and was, a, you know, a pretty big success. And then again, we had, you know, things like the telesphere mask. We had um, the sort of Damocles from Ivan Sutherland, which it doesn't show it in this photo, but basically there are a bunch of overhanging kind of large arms. Look it up. And that was really to, to track the motion of the head, of his head as he looked around. Certainly not portable. Um, and then we started kind of, you know, moving into the good old 80s when I grew up and Tron, which was my favourite film, which really kind of that and I think Lawnmower Man were the first real films from Hollywood that started, um, I guess, showing us what a, a virtual world could be like um, and kind of, you know, showing us some imagination around that. Um, in the 1990s, Jaron Lanier, who really, I guess, um, kick-started VR in its modern sense in a way. He was um, a musician, but he also kind of um, created the power glove. Awesome. Um, and it was relatively unusable, but it was a huge thing at the time. And that was kind of the start of VR's first phase. Um, and then you had, you know, like Nintendo Virtual Boy, Second Life. But really, these types of experiences were happening well before the tech was really ready to make it um, or give it a, a grand kind of entrance or a real utility. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, in 2010, we had the Connect come out and I think that was, I guess, the start of this new kind of evolution of, um, I guess, the VR space um, and especially this from a gaming perspective. And I'm not going to continue on with history much from there because this is when we started seeing a lot of the VR headsets come out of that with Oculus really kicking off from there. So where did AR come from? Again, it's been around for quite a long time, mostly in the academic labs. In 1990, <coughs> a guy called Tom Cordell, who worked for Boeing, um, actually was thinking about you or started using it because they had a huge issue at Boeing with the mechanical engineers where they had huge manuals and they had to walk around and look for all the plane parts as well and understand what they were fixing. And he wanted a way to basically provide, um, I guess, an easier and quicker path to getting that knowledge and also understanding where to find the parts that they needed. So we've got, um, I guess, what's called Milgram's Mixed Reality Continuum. So the first time we're really seeing mixed reality as a label. So Paul Milgram came up with this in 1994. And if we start kind of over this side with reality, and that's not an existential question, what is reality? Um, but that's, that's kind of that fleshy, as Rob calls it, meat space that we live in every day and the stuff that, you know, we sometimes want to get away from. 
we've got AR, um, or actually if we flip right over this way, we've got the virtual world. So that is where we're fully immersed um, in an environment that has nothing to do with reality. Although we kind of question that notion because even though uh, you may feel like you're immersed in, in a, in a non-real environment, you're actually physically still in that real world environment and you can't help but get feedback from that environment. So over to the second to the left, we've got augmented reality or AR. So that's really that ability to or overlaying or, or embedding digital objects in the real world that help you find out information about the real world or interact with the real world or context within the real world. And then you've got augmented virtuality. And that is really placing parts of the real world into a more virtualized environment. So where you might see in a virtual environment your real hands kind of projected into that environment or you might see another person actually projected into that environment but they're not represented as a virtual avatar, they're represented as a real version of themselves. Or you might even see holes cut out in that virtual world that let you peer into the real world. So part of the work that we've spent a lot of time doing is um, really trying to take these technologies and put them into the web browser and support them in the web browser. Um, and we've been working a lot on kind of the web standards to support these and with the, the, um, a lot of vendors and including the browser manufacturers, so Chrome and Mozilla and those guys. Um, but I'll just show you a super quick video. So this basically takes that mixed reality continuum that we just walked through and shows it in a real, well, I guess in, in, a, in a more animated way, um, using the web browser to show that and also taking the technologies that it's talking about to actually illustrate that. So we've got virtual reality on the right-hand side and this scene in and of itself, is that playing? So we've got that virtual, there we go. I didn't know that. And this shows you the four main modes that make up this internet. How we go from reality on the left-hand side right through to uh, virtual reality on the far right-hand side. And the two main base modes of play. If we have a look at what's presented in front of us at the moment, this is a virtual scene. So this is a 360 or VR type experience. It has some virtual objects in there. And you can interact with these easily. And of course, you can put this into stereo mode, so you can experience this through some sort of hidden out display experience. To the left of that, we see augmented virtuality. And that's the same sort of scene, but with um, sensor data, so the camera view in this example, projected into the scene. Of course, that sensor data doesn't have to be just cameras. You could project other sensor data in there as well. And on the far left-hand side, as we said, this is reality. So this is the plain standard view of the real world. And if we hold up Mark, this is the inside of a hotel room, reality. This is the meat space that we're in. If we turn on augmented reality, we can see that tracking is now possible, and the digital content is overlaid onto the markers or objects that it sees. So, so I'm going to stop it there because it gives you the idea of, of all of those concepts kind of fitting in across that continuum. Um, and if we go back, if we want to think about um, 
what mixed reality is. Technically, the definition of mixed reality is kind of that bit from the augmented reality to augmented virtuality. But we're also, you know, we think it, it really includes that virtual um, reality space as well, because like I said, you can't ever be completely immersed in that virtual space currently. The definition of AR, um, one of the better definitions came from Ronazuma um, back in the late 90s. And I think, you know, in, in some ways this um, definition can be extended now, but really it's AR allows the user to see the real world with virtual objects superimposed upon it. And it does that in a few different ways. So it combines the real world with the virtual world. And really, true definition, interactive in real time and in real time. But I think there are definitely um, instances where it doesn't necessarily need to be in real time. And registered in 3D, so it's registered in a three-dimensional environment or three-dimensional space. Um, and kind of we're starting to see people use the terminology now XR, which stands for extended reality. And that's come about a bit because um, Microsoft have really, I guess for a lot of marketing and product purposes, adopted the term mixed reality um, for their HoloLens product. So it's mixing up the message a little bit. So the new term is really starting to be XR, extended reality. And from a web perspective, we're starting to see web XR come in as a label as well. But really, it's all just kind of mixed reality. So taking you through um, some of the technologies that actually make up this space, um, we've got kind of 360. And we're talking about 360 and kind of virtual reality in that more VR type space. So what we mean by 360, and some people call it a panosphere, is um, really you know, a kind of spherical space that is 360 degrees around the circumference. And then it's a 180 degree point of view between the two poles across those hemispheres. And there are three kind of main different types. So we've got panorama. So really, when we're looking at kind of what Facebook has popularized with the ability to upload kind of panorama shots from our phone and view them um, in that embedded environment. So really, we're wrapping that kind of panorama image or video around the inside or, or the interior of that sphere. A bit like wallpaper. Um, Equirectangular is really where you've got images or video um, that you're placing within that sphere. So again, it's wrapped around it. But it's, I guess, where panorama doesn't have a top or bottom. Um, Equirectangular is a two to one ratio, so width and height. And you're actually able to see the full 360 sphere. And spherical really is, is quite similar when you look at it within that kind of 360 degree environment but it's a bit like a fisheye lens when you look at it in a two-dimensional flat plane. Um, so you're starting to see a lot of this um, come up, and it's supported both from a web perspective and also in you know, kind of downloadable apps. And really strong use cases um, we're starting to see in a virtual tour guide, that type of thing, especially if you're not actually somewhere. You want to see what somewhere looks like and be able to look around and control that experience, um, almost like that teleporting experience. Um, and we're starting to see it a lot in education and training as well, particularly in the corporate training sector, where you can, situa you can place someone situationally in a context, and they can be kind of embedded in that 360-degree environment in a simulated way, um, and obviously much cheaper than setting up um, specific simulation environments. <coughs> and a lot 
in the education space, especially for vocational education, where uh, we've got we've worked with some people doing civil construction training, and so rather than you know throw the students directly into a digger that's worth two hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollars and get them to turn it on and off they go. Um, they're starting, and rather than getting to read a manual, which they probably won't read anyway, starting to create 360 environments where they can go through and get orientation training and start to be assessed that way. So some people would argue a lot and to the death that VR is unbelievably different to 360s. Um, technically, sure, we can apply that, but I think you're just having an argument for argument's sake in the long run because nobody using this stuff really cares. From a gaming perspective, probably absolutely, but when you boil down to it, 360s can be a really easy and quick way and effective way to do what might take a really long time and have a much bigger and larger budget than full-on VR development in kind of Unity and needing lots of programmers. But there is a big difference with VR, and I think for, for like that kind of development, um, and for gaming, you've got a more, I guess, discovery mode with that. So you could have an endless um, amount of, I guess, paths to follow, whereas, I guess, 360 is more a led-through experience. And in terms of AR, um, it's a pretty broad um, area, and it's got a lot of um, really complex kind of niche domain areas. But the kind of the two main types, I guess, at the moment that people are really using and really talking about are location-based and computer vision. So from a location perspective, we can talk about three types, which is relative, geo, and sensor-based. So by relative, what we mean is kind of having objects, virtual objects or digital objects in the real world kind of floating around you and at a relative distance or a relative or a, or a direction around you and being persistent and potentially always there. And some of the examples of that are, you know, you might have um, your desktop kind of always sitting over your right shoulder and when you're ready to use it, you can just turn around and use that desktop. So from a location, um, fixed location or, or geolocation perspective, what we mean by that is your fixed location in the physical world. Um, and the way in which that's determined is through using GPS technology at the moment, <laughs> and mostly used for outdoor. Um, so that really requires you to have line of sight of three satellites, which is not very easy when you're in a bunker or you're in a, in a fairly built-up urban environment. Um, it also allows you to understand the altitude that someone's at. Um, from an accuracy perspective, it is impacted if you don't have line of sight of three satellites. And also you do find that when you start experiencing or, or trying to look at content that is location-based, you'll spend a fair bit of time, depending on where you are, trying to actually get that content to be accurately displayed because it takes a while to do the math to figure out exactly where you are. So one of the challenges is when you're doing this kind of stuff is figuring out how to tell the people using these experiences that their location is actually being refined as they go. And what that equates to a lot of the time from a content perspective is you'll see it bouncing around and people just don't know what's happening. Um, but the primary use cases that we're seeing are things like historical tours, wayfinding in cars as well when you're driving around, 
wayfinding, we're working on stuff with um, some ski resorts, different ski resorts, I'm doing wayfinding around the mountain, so you're not unpacking big paper-based maps all the time. Um, and also, of course, Pokemon Go is a really obvious example. Then you've got kind of, I guess, more the sensor-based um, locative AR. And that's really used more indoors where you don't necessarily have that accuracy or a reliable um, GPS signal to accurately tell people where things are in relation to them. Um, you've also got, I think, in those smaller interior environments, you want the accuracy to be far greater. So you want people to know about different pieces of con physical content or physicalized content that's far closer together. And there are lots of different ways of doing that. Um, <coughs> one of the, the challenges for that, and we worked on a project with Powerhouse Museum, a proof of concept about four or five years ago, where for one of their exhibitions, um, we basically um, put some indoor tracking and positioning in. And then the idea was that as people walked around the exhibition with their app, they could be looking at, at, a, at a, an artifact in the exhibition and get a whole lot more information about that artifact. But we had two meter by two meter square and we started realizing when people started using it that they would step out of the square to actually look at the artifact in a different, from a different angle potentially. But because it, they'd moved the square, we suddenly gave them that information from you know, the artifact next to it. So you need to start thinking about those types of possibilities and understanding what the person's actually trying to do and not just assuming that they've moved to the next thing. And then we've got computer vision. So computer vision, I guess, um, or visual search especially, is what is being used by quite a lot of, especially retailers at the moment, and a lot of print media. So um, it works for images, for objects, and facial recognition as well. So really what it does, and if we break it down just at an image level, is you take an image and you should be able to hold your, say, phone over it, and it recognizes that image and shows you some content related to it. Pretty easy. What it actually does and is, um, <laughs> is it takes that image and it strips that image down to grayscale. Okay, and then it um, looks for different features within that grayscaled image. So basically points to where I guess there, or looks for contrast changes so it can start to set up unique patterns that can be recognized. And then once it's done that, it tries to match it with a match to, to I guess, show whatever content is related to that. Um, there are some issues with that that are not obvious. So one of the big issues is um, that, that we've had is once we were working with some huge wall graphics, they were really cool, awesome characters, really kid-friendly, but they were all pastels. And we couldn't figure out what was going on for ages, and then we started manually just moving these images down to grayscale, and they all just became grey blobs of the same hue. So really what looked to us like there was contrast still, it didn't look to, like it to the machine. The other thing is we did some work with a large real estate um, chain. And Australia has this awesome obsession with white clean kitchens and white bathrooms. And so for this real estate company, they had a hundred, oh, sorry, a million um, or over a million um, property images that they wanted people to be able to just scan and they get more information about the property. But all of those white kitchens and white bathrooms that we love so much basically resulted in no results. 
So that was a huge issue. And because that was an automated process, that was a challenge to get around. And then you've got tracking. So you've got a couple of different um, tracking technologies. And the first we've kind of looked at as a 2D plane. So you can have what we call fiducial markers, which are in that top left up there. So they're basically black and white, almost look like QR codes, and they're really defined structures and patterns. And then you've got just straight, I guess, an image, any image, and that's called natural feature tracking. So basically, once your trigger or your, your image or object or whatever you've actually kind of scanned is recognized, and you return some objects to display um, related to that, so they can be positioned over it at a relative distance, straight up against it. There can be multiple images or information. Um, as long as the source trigger is in view, those objects or that content you've returned will actually be displayed. But as soon as you actually, I guess, move that trigger away so it's not seen, then the object's going to disappear. But as long as it can see it, it'll track pretty well with it. You've then also got SLAM. So that's not up there, but um, it's simultaneous localization and mapping is what it stands for and kind of came from the robotics area originally. So basically it looks for features. So say you held your camera up into a room, so it looks for features within that space and then it builds a global map of that space and it actually remembers it. So say you were throwing some content up there to, to show in front of you but you actually turned around, that content would still actually be there because there's a map of that space and it knows that content has to stay there. Um, and a really good example of, of the use of that at the moment is Apple's AR kit that's coming out next month. I don't know how many of you have seen examples from AR kit, but it's, yeah, it's worth checking out some of the examples on YouTube. Um, and then you've got depth sensing. So I guess normal, which is down here. So normal cameras use um, RGB and depth cameras use kind of other sensors um, to sense the space and the world around them. So if you kind of think of our eyes as being normal cameras, you can kind of think of depth sensing as being more like a bat kind of sonar. Um, so it can really detect the space that it's in. Um, and with um, depth sensing, and there's not, it's not used a lot at the moment, but if you guys have heard of Google's Project Tango phones or Tango phones that have started being released, so I think the Asus Zen phone is the newest one that's come out. Um, you can start doing some really interesting things with them. So you could hold up the phone, say, and put it around the space, and it basically creates a scene of this entire room. So I can start putting virtual content into this space, say I had a ball, throw the ball, and it would actually bounce off the walls within this space because it knows they're the parameters of those. Um, I could also do things like, and this is where I think it's going to be really interesting in the retail space. I could go up to a chair, I could just scan it with my phone, and it becomes a 3D model with the textures in place and everything that you can use. So that type of technology is coming really soon into your phones that you've got in your pocket. And it's really going to democratise that content creation space. And we've also got a lot of fragmentation in the physical input area at the moment. So we've really, we're moving from what has primarily been, especially in the mobile phase, a, a kind of direct manipulation and touch um, from a physical input perspective into controllers and other types of sensors. Um, so we're really, we've kind of gone from a, a fragmented platform and multi-device, um, I guess, environment. Um, we're really kind of 
further exploding that fragmentation by the introduction of lots of different types of controllers that don't necessarily have a standards-based approach to their implementation. And from an output space, and I won't talk too much about this, but there's starting to be a lot of um, emerging, I guess, haptics um, technologies and solutions coming out too. So there's four, we did this about seven years ago and it hasn't really changed, but um, even 10 years ago, but there are four main modes of what we, what we define as mixed reality. So there's the public mode, personal, private and intimate. The public is really where, it's a bit like the, the magic bench example that we had earlier. So really you've got a whole body in the field of view. You can have quite a lot of participants within that space and we didn't see it on magic bench, but they can support a bunch of people kind of sitting on the bench and, and participating in that space. But it's got really limited distribution. It's not particularly mobile at all or portable. Um, you've got personal. So that's really um, where you're just using your computer. You might have some of your body in the field of view. You might have all of it in the field of view. Um, and there are fewer spectators. It's normally just you, maybe someone else. Um, we've got private, which is really that kind of area of mobile VR and, and mobile AR at the moment. So you've only got your kind of extremities or your head in the field of view. Normally it's just you, maybe a friend or something participating in it, but it can be widely distributed and can also be location specific. And then you've got intimate, which is the domain of kind of the, the head mounted displays. So it's very, very much just you and, and that's it. Um, and that's got really limited distribution, but is obviously growing the more the kind of manufacturers push the head-mounted displays. But there is a huge hype around how big VR is. Um, and this is the forecast from basically last year to 2021. So you can see the AR headsets are going to have a really slow growth and still do it. Most of that is just in enterprise and industrial and manufacturing, but VR headsets are taking off. So this year, they were predicted to be you know, selling over 20 million units. The reality of that is really different. So you've got Q1 results, and you're kind of just about two and a half million shipped in the three months. Um, and most of those are predominantly in that others category. That other category or others category is cardboard-like devices. So we're not talking kind of Vive and Rift headsets. So it's still a real fringe technology from that perspective. There's also a bunch of other factors at play that are kind of fragmenting this whole market too. Um, one of them is the, the, I guess, decline of iOS. So iOS devices are becoming, I guess, they're more expensive as, as cheaper Androids come up. Um, but they're also, I guess, with Apple's AR kit shipping, um, the AR experiences that you start to see on Apple are going to be really exclusive. So they're just for the 6S and above, and they're just for, for people who have iOS 11 actually installed. So if you're thinking about you know, developing experiences in ARKit, awesome technology, but a fairly exclusive experience. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we've really gone down a web path too, is that you've got, again, a really high number, but less than 26 million HMDs for the end of this year. 2 billion mobile devices that can support these technologies now and in kind of installable native apps. But then you've got 3 billion installed web browsers across lots of different device types that can already start utilizing mixed reality. And that they're, they're pretty inclusive because you can share them and access them 
just fire a single link. So we won't go through that. So really quickly, just obstacles to use, which there are a lot. And I think this is the area where we've had AR and VR technologies being mainly in the labs and in academia, and there's been a lot of developers and technologists kind of behind this and advancing the cause. But now it's the time for designers to really take this and run with it and make it human accessible. So one of the things that you need to do is plan. It's all the stuff that we do. You don't need to change anything. So all the discovery phases, storyboarding, prototyping, user testing, all of that. The biggest difference is you're kind of moving from a more two-dimensional plane and a linear plane, especially in a digital environment, into a spatialized environment. And that comes with its own set of challenges. Um, you're introducing people to new concepts and new ways of interacting with the world around them or not around them. So you need to really think about making your interaction patterns super consistent and to make it feel really familiar without going down too much of a skeuomorphic kind of path. And make sure that you're not just developing for a single platform either. You don't want to leave people out there hanging. Unless you've got a really specific target audience in mind and no one else is going to access it, then that's one thing. But otherwise, make it really inclusive. You want to minimize friction. So there are lots of friction points, especially if you're asking people to jump into, say, a VR experience and back out into a different digital experience. How do we actually minimize that? And the biggest thing is, are you solving a real problem? So we're seeing heaps of people just go, oh, we just want to use this technology. But there's no reason for them to actually use it. It's not solving a real problem. So use it wisely. And really, people don't care about the labels. They just want some magic to happen and their problem to be solved. And I think that's one of the key things to take away when you're starting to work with these technologies. And Sketchfab, who are a, a VR kind of content community, um, so this is very VR focused, but applies equally into the AR realm. They've done some surveys. And the, the biggest feedback from their user group, and this is potentially a or mainly a developer user group too, was that the UX and content side is the biggest obstacle that still needs to be addressed with all of this. And you can see, and I won't go into it, but viewing on like head mount display only apps or mobile only apps is a pain in the ass for people to actually get to. If you can do it in web and you've already got web experiences that you use for your brand, then just support this stuff in the web. Share it with the link. Embed it and integrate it with experiences that your customers or your users are already having. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't have to say to them, we just need you to go and do X because we're jumping to a whole new technology now. Make it an integrated and seamless experience. Let me back up there. So, whoops. We're running a little bit short on time. But the biggest, I think, things that we want to think about and take away is if you're doing location-specific content or experiences, make sure you understand that location. If you can't be there, really understand the topography and topology of it. Make sure that people are going to be in line of sight of satellites and they know where they are. In a recognition and tracking environment, make sure if people you're asking people to scan images or objects that they're not going to be, you know, have really a lot of light reflected off them and that kind of thing. That basically the, the files that you're or the content that you're throwing at them is not going to be hugely problematic or, or really hard to download or really, um, you know, huge. Um, 
I don't think we have time to go through learning real world, but I'm happy to talk to anyone about it. But we've done a lot of work with a lot of cultural institutions and now in the tourism space and a lot of work in the education space. And we've seen a lot of the real world challenges that come up, including doing a huge thing for the National Archives where um, we spent a long time working with them, created this beautiful experience, um, AR experience as you move through the exhibition to kind of um, surprise people and, and let them into the story of, of um, the design of Canberra and all of the kind of people that entered the competition or finalists in the competition. We got access to the physical space three days prior. Nothing worked because all of the lighting was completely different to what it was like when we'd seen it in the storage facilities. So we kind of had to redo it with 36 hours to, to spare. Um, if you want to go out, start prototyping. All you really need is head-mount display, mobile devices, PCs, and some 360 cameras. These are all now sub $700 and all have their pros and cons. Kodak PixPro, if you're going to do any drone kind of shots, is awesome because it can go top and bottom and you're not going to see the drone, so it looks like it's actually flying through the air. Um, and the Nikon Key Mission is kind of our favourite I guess, consumer-level camera there. Um, it's got a really good, high-quality resolution. Massive amount of tips. Um, and you'll see it when the slides are made available. But there are lots and lots of things to think about, the biggest being just prototyping and exploration. This is an open kind of stage for people to have fun and explore with. And I guess to finish, it's really our torch to bear at the moment. This is an opportunity that you guys have to have fun play before it gets into the consumer mainstream, which is still really three to five years away at the very, very least and could be longer. So go out, see what you can do. It can be done cheaply and just have fun with it and learn from the experience. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Alex. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.